This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Is Israel in breach of the UN court's ruling? The International Court of Justice ordered its military to end acts of genocide, as well as to prevent incitement to commit genocidal acts. But with more Palestinians killed in Gaza every day, who can force Israel to comply? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. So let's bring in our guests for today's discussion from Rafa in southern Gaza. We're joined by Yusuf Hamash, a Gaza resident and advocacy officer for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Here in Doha is Moan Rabani, co-editor of Jadalia, an online news website. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Centre for Conflict and Humanitarian Studies. And from London, we're joined by Neve Gordon, a professor of international law and human rights at Queen Mary University. Neve is also a board member of the International State Crime Initiative. Gentlemen, welcome to you all. Let's start with you, Yusuf. Is there any sign there that Israel is complying with the ICJ's orders. Yani unfortunately, we didn't see any difference either between before the, the decision had been made by the ICJ or after. Yani there is not, not, the aid is not tangible until now. We are talking about the daily average for the trucks that allowed to enter through Rafah crossing and Kerem Shalom is 158 trucks. And the need is more than a thousand per day. So I don't, yani unfortunately, the displaced families in Rafah didn't feel any tangible change with the amount of aid that came into Gaza. But I'd add to that the catastrophic situation in the northern part of Gaza and Gaza City, which unfortunately until now our, our hands are tight and we, cannot, we are not able to provide assistance to the northern part of Gaza because we don't have an access. It was allowed previously to, it was allowed to enter for a few amount of food items and after that, Unfortunately, after the attack of one of the eight trucks that have been delivered by UNRWA in the coastal road, none of the eight trucks have been sent to the northern part of Gaza. And currently, the, the population there, more than 400,000 citizens, are living through a famine, a literal famine. We used to call it, we used to call and demand that we, there is, the situation in the north is on the, on the verge of a famine. Currently, we have a famine. Families there are eating animal food or looking for anything to feed their children and unfortunately they don't have any options in front of the need of their children in the northern part of Gaza to provide them anything. It's a catastrophic situation in Gaza. Unfortunately the situation hasn't been changed. And Yusuf, people must be particularly worried about Israel's threat to launch a ground offensive there in Rafah. Uh, where will people go? 
يعني ذاتس ذا كويشن ايفرون هيد الرفح يعني فاميليز هو ار بين ديسبليسد الرفح هاف بين ديسبليسد سيفرال تايمز ذيس ناو they became kind of expert in displacement. Unfortunately, all the options that we had before, and personally, I live in the northern part of Gaza in Jabali. I have been, I have fled from a place to the other four or five times. Now I don't have any other options. And all of us have been trapped in, in Rafah, and more than 60% of the housing unit in general of Gaza Strip have been destroyed. The remaining housing units are in Rafah. So even if they were pushed somewhere else from Rafah to be forced to flee again. Unfortunately, there is no options. We don't have any place to go. The Gaza city and the northern part of Gaza is totally destroyed. The middle area is under bombardment most of the time. On a daily basis, you're talking about loads of bombardments, several areas, there al Balah, Nusayrat, al Burej, and other areas. Now we are trapped between the Israeli tanks and the Egyptian border from the other side. So even Rafah as a, as a city doesn't have the capacity to manage the need of all of these amount of people who've been displaced in Rafah. More than 1,500,000 citizens in 55 square kilometers in Rafah currently without any option or solution or any hope in the horizon for a solution for the situation. Moin Robani, um, what do you make of what you just heard there from, from Yusuf? Is Israel in breach of uh, the UN court's ruling? I would argue that it's more in breach of the ruling today than it was on the day that the ruling was issued. Um, the, the nature and intensity of the Israeli onslaught on the Gaza Strip appears to be unchanged. Um, what has changed is a geographical scope, which, as we've just heard, has now extended um, to Rafah and the southern Gaza Strip. I think the other change is that time is a factor. Um, as we've just heard, what had been hunger and severe hunger a month ago is now an actual famine. We've also seen that Israel continues um, to block aid, continues to shoot up aid convoys, snipes at um, ambulances, uh, killing, killing their staff, and so on. So I, I really don't see anything, any change in Israeli conduct except for the worse and with the additional factor um, of time, there is absolutely no reason that any judgment that was valid last month would um, not be at least equally valid today. We'll leave the, the, the legal argument to Neve in just a moment, but politically, what can be done to force Israel to comply? Well, this is a decision, really, that is in the hands of Israel's Western sponsors, particularly um, the United States, and the European Union. Um, we had a statement today, I believe, from the White House um, indicating that the United States does not want to see any combat in Rafah over the period of uh, Ramadan, which begins in um, around uh, March 10th, because it's concerned about the regional repercussions. But what that, in effect, does is give Israel a green light to continue and even intensify its campaign between now and um, that day. It's quite clear that if the United States wanted this to come to an end, it would take no more than a phone call from the White House to the Israeli prime minister, and it would end instantaneously. They've made a choice. They have made a decision. They have an ideological commitment to Israel's campaign. They are supporting it without qualification or reservations. And the consequences are um, what we're seeing on the ground and what um, uh, our guest in, uh, in Rafah just informed us about.
Neve, uh, Neve Gordon in London, is, is it possible from a, from a legal standpoint to determine yet whether Israel is in breach of the orders issued by the ICJ, requiring it to take steps to protect uh, Palestinians' rights and to cease all activities that could uh, constitute genocide? I think it is possible to claim that Israel is in breach, but Israel's also, we are seeing that Israel's also preparing a legal defense. <clears throat> it's not, as the two first speakers have noted, it's not changing really its strategy on the ground, but it's actually instituting three notable uh, interventions to create a defense first. It's launching a series of investigation into particular incidents where it says maybe war crimes uh, were carried out. We, we know that from the past that these investigations usually target soldiers and not commanders and surely not political leaders. And if we look at 2014, after Israel killed over 2,000 Palestinians, it, only one investigation went through, and in it, two soldiers were found guilty of stealing $200. So I don't think these investigations are serious, but legally, they're very important. We also see how Israel's attack on the United Nations Relief and Work Agency, and the, the idea behind this attack is also a legal idea. First, it wants to claim that much of the evidence provided by the South Africa in the South African application is not true. It was given by UN bodies, and like the UN, the like UNRWA, they too could be some way aligned with quote unquote terrorists, and therefore we should not believe this evidence. And second, it's using uh, its allegations against UNRWA to stop, or to not totally stop, but to kind of limit the humanitarian aid that's coming into the Gaza Strip, saying, hey, this is a terrorist organization. We need to look closer into uh, uh, what, what is being brought in. And third, uh, we see that there's much less genocidal incitement in the Israeli media, but it's important to, to understand that the issue of intent is not only the utterance of the Israeli politicians and Israeli soldiers, but it is also the kind of actions that Israel is taking. And so there's also the question of circumstantial intent, namely, if Israel attacks Rafah, it will still be uh, 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 a, a South Africa will still be able to claim that it is carrying out genocide with intent. Neve, just just briefly, if you can, what legally then can be done at this stage to force Israel to comply? I mean, what are the implications here for the ICJ and and its authority? There's a few questions here. One is that the ICJ itself is only a judicial arm. It's not an executive arm. And even if tomorrow morning the ICJ ruled on a ceasefire, a rule that immediately much more humanitarian aid needs to come into Gaza, 
The only arm that can make Israel do that within the United Nations framework is the Security Council. But the, the ICJ itself has no enforcement mechanism. It's the Security Council that has to rule and decide on enforcement mechanisms following an ICJ ruling. Uh, the IC, the South Africa can uh, 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 apply again to the, the ICJ and say, listen, the, the situation is getting worse. Israel's beginning its onslaught on the Raf on Rafah. It's much more dangerous. Can you issue other measures such as a full suspension of hostilities? Although I would say that the first initial six measures, the only way to comply by them is a suspension of hostilities, namely a ceasefire. Okay. Uh, Yusuf Hamash, uh, picking up on, on what Neve was saying there, you touched upon it in, in your, one of your first answers. Tell us more about the situation on aid to Gaza. Israel insists that it is enabling the entrance of humanitarian aid into Gaza and is, quote, facilitating the transfer of any amount of aid requested. The scope of incoming aid is only limited, it says, by the handling capabilities of the UN and other agencies in the Gaza Strip. You're saying, though, that there's been no improvement in the delivery and availability of aid, right? Yeah, and if, uh, unfortunately, you, if you look to the Egyptian side, you can see how many trucks are waiting just to be allowed to be entering. The, there is a huge problem with the supply chain itself in terms of aid. We usually assist and do our assessment to clarify the needs that we should cover urgently. And unfortunately, within our, the processing providing the aid into Gaza the needs usually change before we are, we are, we have the, the aid tangibles in our hand. Unfortunately, if you go again to the Egyptian side of the border, you will see that hundreds of trucks are waiting to be allowed to go into the process that it's taking really long. The amount of trucks are, are not covering 10% of the need yet. 150 truck is the average per day, while we need to recover at least a thousand truck per day. We, as long we never, we didn't reach that number of trucks of eight trucks into Gaza, we will still facing famine in the north, another catastrophic situation in the middle area, and another catastrophic situation in Rafah, because we cannot, we are not able to do our role without having the aid. The aid is waiting on the other side of the border, waiting to be allowed on a daily basis. They have to be, they have to, the trucks need to be scanned from both sides, the Egyptian side and the Israeli side. We were expecting that after opening Kerem Shalom that the, the number of aid trucks will increase, but unfortunately we didn't see any difference either before or after. And it's, I don't think that we need to look about the obligations related to, to that. We need to think about it from a humanitarian perspective. There is a huge need, there is a catastrophic crisis, one of the most complicated crises on the planet, and it's, I think Without allowing 1,000 trucks per day, we are going to face what we are facing currently in the north. And uh, the, another thing to be highlighted, that the issue in Rafah are shading what's going on in the north. Unfortunately, because we don't have access either for communication, information there, we cannot be on the ground to understand exactly what's going on. But we, what we receive from 
relatives, family members, or friends from the north, it's heartbreaking. And our our hands are t are tight in front of that because we cannot, we don't have the ability to access to the northern part and Gaza City to provide assistance for families. We'll be talking in depth about the, about this whole aid issue on our next inside story on uh, on Monday. Uh, Moan Rabani, um, the ICJ's orders are a test not only of the, the the court's authority but of other signatories to the Genocide Convention. Why the deafening silence from from many of those nations, and 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 what pressure, if any, does Israel's failure to comply with the court's provisional orders put on the U.S. and, and other? Uh, Israeli allies? Well, the, the court's rulings are binding on all state parties to the Genocide Convention, and that includes the United States, and that includes each and every member state of the European Union. What we've essentially seen since their initial ruling is business as usual. You take, for example, the Netherlands, where a number of human rights organizations have sued the Dutch government um, seeking a court order to order the government to stop supplying spare parts for the Israeli F-35 jets that are um, raising the Gaza Strip to the ground. And the court ruled in favor of the government um, that its um, uh, reliability as a supplier and as a, um, uh, as a commercial supplier trumped any other considerations, such as um, the government's obligations um, under the Genocide Convention. On Monday, um, there, there will be an appeal of, of this initial ruling, and it will be very interesting to see if this time um, the courts decide that, yes, um, the Genocide Convention does apply not only um, to adversaries and enemies of the West, but to um, Western governments um, as well. In terms of the United States, I think we have to recognize how deeply ideologically committed um, President Biden and his most senior aides are to an Israeli victory. Um, their real issue with Israel is not what Israel is doing to Palestinians, but what Israel is not doing to Palestinians. In other words, Israel's failure to achieve a military victory against the Palestinian armed organizations. That is really the only significant difference um, between Washington and the Israeli government. And, and as Professor Gordon said, um, the ICJ does not have enforcement mechanisms. And what we've seen is Western governments essentially acting as if they're free to ignore um, their obligations vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel and its genocidal campaign in the Gaza Strip. Neve Gordon, what does the law say about countries like the U.S. who hold influence over Israel, countries that are, that are also signatories to the Genocide Convention? What are their responsibilities under international law? They certainly cannot be complicit with genocide. And I think what Moines showed and said is that there are several countries now that have been complicit with Israel's genocidal violence both by uh, supplying weapons and money and by supplying political support. And I, I, I know that there are several lawyers now preparing a case against the United States and the UK governments for complicity. I know that the Foreign Office in, in, in the UK has uh, expressed serious concerns about Israel's uh, committing war crimes 
in the Gaza Strip at a time when the UK government continues to transfer weapons to Israel. I think these governments need to also be careful, and these leaders need to be careful, that uh, history will not judge them as being as taking part in 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 one of the worst genocides in the 21st century. Yusuf uh, Hamash, what would your your message to the world be right now on on this issue of whether or not Israel is complying with the, the ICJ's orders? Israel not being applying to the ICJ put a new commitment to the world leaders and international com community to do their role. Unfortunately, since the beginning of this war, we didn't see a real action from the world leaders. U.S., as, which represents itself as a country who is leading the world, unfortunately, we are not seeing a real effort towards stopping that's what's going on. What's going, what's taking place in Gaza is inhuman. And we don't see a real action from the international community and world leaders. Once again, we are failing, and the international community is failing us as Palestinians here in Gaza. We, from the international community to the, United, the Security Council, the United Nations, now the ICJ, I think that no more efforts can be done for Palestinians. And that was the last step that could be done towards trying to save the lives of Palestinians in, in Gaza under this madness. And we don't see a real action, and unfortunately, they had to stand ahead their responsibilities because they will held responsible okay. in front of us and the history itself. What, Moan Rabani, what are the implications then for the Israeli political establishment on, on deciding whether to comply or not with the court's provisional orders? And, and is Israel's military in lockstep here with the government, or is, or is there some unease in the military? I'm, I'm sure there's um, unease at the level of both the uh, political and uh, military leadership, unease about being put under scrutiny, and I think unease at the tremendous moral and political loss that they've incurred by now being found to be plausibly committing genocide, particularly given that Israel is so reliant on the goodwill of Western public opinion, and that much of that support comes from the image of Israel as being somehow reparations for the Nazi Holocaust. Um, now Israel is associated with genocide as a perpetrator and not only as a victim. So this will have severe um, long-term consequences. But I think in the present moment, I think the Israeli leadership isn't really looking at the fine points of the law. It's not even looking at The Hague. And Netanyahu was very clear that he won't be affected by anything coming out of The Hague in terms of this military campaign. He's looking at Washington and he's looking at Brussels. Those are his political and, for that matter, legal terms of reference. Um, and it will be on the basis of what emanates from those two capitals that he will decide what he will and will not do next. Neve, do you want to pick up on, on what Moan was saying there? Israel, of course, has a history of pushing the limits of international law. I, I wonder to what extent Israel's government is, is, is circumventing its own domestic legal system to justify its, its actions in Gaza? Well, we have not seen a substantial increase in humanitarian as demanded by the court. We have not seen a significant change in the repertoires of violence deployed in Gaza and a decrease in the killing of civilians. Indeed, I think uh, we, we're seeing the same level of civilian death as we saw before the court ruling. 
So again, it's a controversial report. And we have not seen any indictments and even investigations of those inciting genocidal violence, again, as demanded by the court. So the Israeli government, I think, has decided that in many ways it is going to ignore the code court. We do see the legal establishment, as I pointed out earlier, preparing a legal defense. But I think we also have to remember that Netanyahu has an, a personal interest to continue with this uh, war on the Palestinian people, because he knows that the minute he will stop this war, then uh, he will be under immense investigation and the Israeli public will demand his resignation. So the only uh, uh, what is keeping Netanyahu actually in power is the war. And therefore, he, he's saying, as I think Moin Rabani said before, that despite what the international community said, despite what the court said, despite even what the president of the United States has said, he's going on and, and instructing the military to go into, the, into Rafah. And uh, so I think there's now a kind of clash between a certain legal establishment within Israel that that still respects okay. the idea of the ICJ and uh, and the political and military leadership in the country. All right. There, gentlemen, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it. Many thanks to you all, Yusuf Hamash, Moen Rabani, and uh, Neve Gordon. This episode was produced by Mohammed El Aichi, Sarah Gill, Veronica Pedroza, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Yasir Rahmani. The program is edited by George Joseph, Zainab Bada, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Monday for our next edition. in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.